Hello everyone, this is Jerome. I serve as a community pastor here at First Christian Church. Welcome to our brand new podcast. I'm so glad that we get to serve you today through this message. God bless you. Let's get into the word. We have uh, a very special guest with us who's not necessarily new to FCC anymore, Gary Ingram. Um, I met Gary a couple of years ago. I was actually introduced to him by my son, Micah. Um, Gary and Micah were at an event put on by CCV for missionaries that they support. And I got a call from Micah that day saying, Dad, I, I sat next to this dude at this lunch, and you got to meet him. Here's his name. You guys are on the same page. He would be an encouragement to you. So Gary and I got together right after that, and Gary has become just a very dear friend and brother to me. He's become a blessing to this church and to the churches in this valley and really all over our nation. Um, I asked Gary to come talk to us about the, it, this topic of sexuality in this series where we're looking at what God says, what his word says about big issues that are in, in debate right now in the public arena. Uh, Gary has a beautiful story of redemption and healing and recreation in the Lord surrounding this topic. And the thing I love about Gary is I believe that God has given him some, some special, reasonable, logical, sound-thinking insight about the issue of sexuality that goes way beneath the surface of the popular rhetoric that we're hearing all the time right now in our country. So welcome, Gary, as he comes. Mm. And let's just pray real quickly for him and for ourselves. Lord, we give you this morning... And we thank you for our brother Gary and the work that you've done in him and the insight that you've given him about the issue of sexuality, which I believe is a gift to him for us, for your people. We open up our hearts and minds to you. We ask that you bless Gary now as he shares with us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much. It's good to be with you this morning. Chuck asked earlier if uh, the podium was too low or if I wanted it a little bit higher, and you can see this is about perfect for me, so uh, being of low stature. Uh, so thank you for being here. Thank you for those who are joining us online. Uh, really happy that uh, I get a chance to be here with you on this particular topic. And you know, it's, it may, maybe it sounds a little strange to say when we're talking about sexuality, uh, a lot of us don't like to talk about that topic, right, for a variety of reasons. And, uh, but this is a topic that I care deeply about. It's a topic that I think the church needs to address in much more open and transparent ways. Um, and it's a topic in which, and, and, and here's part of the good news, it's a topic, it's a topic that sounds so sterile. The reality is that I am a sexually and relationally broken man. And you are sexually and relationally broken people. And we're in this together. On some level, whether it's extreme or, or it's uh, in a milder form, none of us uh, live out our sexuality. None of us live out what God has designed for us relationally the way he designed us to. 
that, that got interrupted with sin being entered into the world, right? And, and into the human race. And so it's important that we as a church learn how to address these issues in a way that is both truthful and honest and full of scripture, but is also full of compassion. And you know what? It's easy, it's easy to fall in one direction or the other. It's easy to, to, to lean toward what seems like compassion, what seems like love, uh, and, and we wind up minimizing or ignoring truth altogether, or we just tend to thump on truth and we sort of let the cookies crumble where they will. We don't care about how it hurts or crushes people. We don't care about walking necessarily alongside of people. And the truth is, to be uh, the church of Jesus Christ today and the culture that we live in, it's important that we learn how to um, walk in the tension of those two things. Our ministry name is Love and Truth Network. And the reason we named it that is because we really do believe that we have to learn how to walk in the tension of those two realities of both love and truth. Does that make sense? And so... One of the things that, uh, that I think is so important for us is that in our day and age, that virginity and the re-embracing of sexual purity, for those of us who have gone way off in the weeds, which I certainly did, and I'll tell you a tiny bit about that a little bit later. Um, don't have a lot of time to get into that, but I'll explain a little bit of that. But re-embracing sexual purity for those that have, that have really failed in that in some capacity, they are powerful witnesses it's a powerful witness in our day and age to our surrender to the lordship and to the, the work of Jesus Christ in our lives. Anyone can say they're a Christian. Anyone can say that. Anyone can go to church on a Sunday morning and even do it regularly. But what has Jesus Christ done in our lives that has transformed our lives or is in the process of transforming our lives? I was in a season where I surrendered my life to Jesus, even though I grew up in a church and in a Christian home, and uh, I was in a season of, of life where I was trying to figure this thing out. I had I'd gone to, again, grew up in church, uh, went to Bible college, uh, left Bible college before I finished, actually got the boot out because they were concerned that I might be suicidal, had a lot of emotional problems and struggles, and a lot of those issues stemmed from my early exposure to, to pornography by some older neighborhood boys when I was five or six years old, some of their homosexual behavior that happened. And then when I hit puberty and, and, and uh, long after that, realizing that I'm same-sex attracted uh, and, and I didn't want that, I didn't know what on earth to do about that, there was no safe place to really unpack any of that stuff in my home or in my church or any place. And, and so I'm just trying harder. Have any of you ever done that? I mean, don't raise your hands, but have you ever done, especially in the area of, of sexuality or pornography struggle or whatever, oftentimes what we do is we try to do better on our own. We want it to be just between us and God. We don't want anybody else to know about it. And we don't realize that nearly everybody else is struggling with that on some level too. Maybe not in sexual addiction, but, but people are struggling and we're struggling within the church. And so um, part of that brokenness that, that was a part of my life, um, I, I, I eventually surrendered my life to Jesus in my early 20s. Now, I grew up in church. I, I prayed the sinner's prayer a bunch of times, but for me, it was always about escaping hell, but not surrendering to, to God or to Jesus. And in my early 20s, I finally had an experience of really finally surrendering my life to Jesus, and I went through this season, uh, kind of a honeymoon period, and then after a while, a lot of the same stuff started to come back again. It wasn't fully dealt with. Just because we surrender our lives to Jesus, even not just to the degree of saying, okay, you're Savior, I think we, when we come to Jesus, we come to see Jesus as Savior and Lord. It's not a separate package. 
But, um, but after this kind of um, radical salvation for me, uh, a lot of these feelings started to, to reemerge again. Um, I had actually, not, when I left Bible college, I was so angry with God. I was so angry at the church for not having any answers. Uh, for me, at least, it seemed to be. And um, I wound up going off and embracing homosexuality, becoming a bartender at a gay club eventually. I mean, the whole, I really embraced that lifestyle and, and believed that that was who I was. But God rescued me out of that place. And the truth is, in the church, yes, there are LGBT issues that need to be addressed in the church, for sure. There are people that are struggling with same-sex attraction or gender dysphoria or any number of those things. But the lion's share of what's going on in the church is heterosexual sexual brokenness. It's pornography addiction. It's sex before marriage. It's sex, you're married and having sex outside of marriage. And so um, these are issues that really need to be addressed for us to have a, a true witness. So part of this witness, it's, it's a powerful witness in today's age for us as Christians to really embrace, not just with our words, but with our actions. What does it mean to follow Jesus in terms of who I am as a man or a woman made in his image? We're going to jump into some of these passages here in just a few minutes. So, you know, what if we actually did relationships and sex God's way? What would be different about your life, and what would be different about the life of those that you love? Just to name a few, I'm going to run through them. And I know that um, Pastor Chuck touched on, uh, didn't touch on, he, he spoke on very clearly and, and uh, profoundly on life last week. Abortion would be massively different. Divorce, massively different. Abuse. Do you know that, that it's estimated that one in four girls, by the time she reaches the age of 18, will have been sexually abused? One in six boys, by the time he reaches 18, will have been sexually abused? sexually abused. There's all kinds of other abuse going on as well. Sexually transmitted diseases or infections, pornography, sexual immorality, sexual exploitation, asexuality, the sense, I don't want to have anything to do with that. I don't care how you made me, God. I don't want to have anything to do with that. Identity confusion, gender dysphoria, loneliness that stems, deep, deep loneliness that stems uh, from sexual uh, relationships, sexual immorality, uh, being in relationships and wanting desperately to be loved and accepted and willing to do anything to get that, only to be dumped and to repeat the, the behavior over and over again. I know what that's like. I'm sure some in this room do too. As well as all the various forms of things that we use to cover up the pain and the shame of sexual sin. There are so many drug addicts, there are so many people medicating, whether it's food, it's drugs, whatever it might be, there are so many of us medicating the shame and the pain of sexual brokenness. And the presenting issue we have is this other thing. And it is an issue, for sure. But oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes that thing is actually being used as a way of coping uh, with, the, with the shame and, the, and the, uh, the struggle that we've been experiencing for years from the sexual abuse or stuff that we ourselves have done, or both. Whenever we talk about this as a ministry, whenever my wife Melissa and I share, we always start with the foundation of Genesis 1, um, 26 and 27. So um, what we see here is then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. We absolutely believe as a ministry that we're not just made as humans in the image of God. And by the way, there's no other creature, not angels, not animals, nothing that has been given this gift and this responsibility of bearing the image of God. 
And we not only bear this image of God, according to this passage, he's made us male and female in his image. There's a way in which men bear the image of God. They're, they're intended to bear the image of God that was disrupted for sure and marred at, at the fall. Absolutely. But uh, there's a way that women bear the image of God that is of equal value to men. And we haven't, we've got that wrong for a long time. We've devalued women oftentimes in culture and the church. They bear an equal value of the image of God, but something that's different from the other. And so it's important that we start here and we understand it, it was God was laying the foundations of the earth and he's establishing humanity. He's establishing creation. He's establishing his image. He's establishing sexuality. It was God's idea. First and foremost, it was a good idea. And we need to know that it's rooted in who we are as men and women made in the image of God. And then also we were created... Uh, to live vulnerably without shame. When we look at Genesis 2.25, and the man and, the, uh, and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. I mean, what an interesting, it, it, it's almost kind of an odd thing that this wraps up chapter 2 of Genesis with this statement. Pause and think for a moment. Wouldn't it be amazing to live life without shame. Now, one of the things that this series is contrasting is the world's perspective versus God's perspective. They're radically different, radically, radically different. Sometimes it can be confusing uh, because, because sometimes what's being proposed from a worldly perspective can sort of mimic uh, what, what God is doing, but it leads us off in a wrong direction. But this idea of, of shame, what the world would tell us is just don't feel it disconnect from it. There's nothing wrong with doing whatever it is that God says not to do. Don't even worry about it. Just disconnect from it. We wind up becoming um, disintegrated individuals who not only don't feel shame, but we disconnect from a lot of other things too. Where God would say, come to me with your shame. I want to wash you. I want to cleanse you. I want to make you whole. I mean, when you think about what Jesus did in the way that he, he went out of his way and sent the disciples off so that he could have this private conversation with a Samaritan woman. A woman so broken, married five times and living with a guy, dumped over and over and over again. And the, and the woman who was dragged out of, uh, some, uh, out of the act of adultery, is what we're told, and thrown before Jesus, of course, where's the guy, Right? But she's thrown before Jesus, and the Pharisees are putting before him, you know, that, hey, we're supposed to stone someone like this. And, of course, what does Jesus say? The one who is without sin cast the first stone. And we always, we look at that, and I do too, and we love that story. I love that story because the Pharisees all drop their stones because they recognize that they're full of sin. But what we oftentimes don't think of is the only person qualified to respond to Jesus' statement is Jesus himself and he doesn't do it. Instead, he protects her, he covers her, and he does tell her to go and sin no more. He empowers us to walk in, um, he empowers us to live even when we've done shameful things, horrifically shameful things. I certainly have. Shameful things have been done to me. Probably lots of us in this room and listening online, shameful things have been done to you as well. But he calls us not to detach from those things, but to let him wash 
and cleanse and be the covering for those things in our lives. Also, in Matthew 19, we read this, and he answered uh, and said, so the ver- the Jesus is the one who's answering here, and the Pharisees came to him and said, hey, you know, can we, uh, they asked him a question about divorce and the legality of divorce, and can we just, can we put our wives away? And he says, answers to them and says, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Again, in this passage, we recognize that Jesus affirms only two genders, not 70-some, not 40-some, not hundreds or thousands. He affirms two genders that were his intention at creation. And he said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. There are two primary things that Jesus reaffirms. So it's not just in the Old Testament. It's not just in Genesis. Jesus reaffirms the reality that there are two genders that God had in mind that he created. And in addition to that, that sexual union is to, be, um, is to be lived out not only between one man and one woman, but within the context of covenant marriage. And so um, very critical that we recognize the value of that and the importance of that. Um, it's also important to recognize that man and woman are not identical. Men, men and women, I mean, some of you are like, well, duh, but, there, but there's a lot of confusion around that today, right? I mean, is there really any difference? Men and women are not meant to be identical. Rather, we are made with differences, but those differences are meant to correspond to each other. Let's look at, um, let's see, and, uh, sorry, I didn't finish out the, the Matthew passage. We're going to jump past that. Uh, so this reality that God, God makes a statement that it is not good for man to be alone. Back in Genesis, uh, let's see here if I can find that again. Um, yeah, Genesis 2.18, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. But for, uh, but for Adam, uh, it, so he goes on. What's interesting is in this passage where I have the dot, dot, dot. So God recognizes it's not good for man to be alone. Then he has all of these animals all the animals he created comes before Adam, and Adam names them. And Adam is recognizing, obviously, um, there's two of these. And they correspond to each other. And there's no one else like me. And so even though God recognizes that it's not good for man to be alone, he still puts, has Adam go through this process of recognizing that there's something different. There's this corresponding that's going on in the animal kingdom that he himself has not yet experienced. And so, but for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took from his rib and closed up that, uh, the flesh at that place, and God, the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken out of the man and brought her to the man. You know, there's not another creature who was made this way. Eve is so unique in that she was taken out of a man. She was taken out of flesh, not made from the dust of the earth. And, and this idea of her corresponding, by the way, I think some of us can feel like, well, that word helper is kind of a diminishing term. Do you realize that um, it was actually in, I want to look this up here, in John 14, 16, the Holy Spirit is called our helper. So obviously to God, that word helper is not a word of diminishment. It is a profound word. It is a, it's the idea of completion. Again, it's that idea of corresponding to. 
This world system, again, is directly opposed. I know I said this earlier, is directly opposed to the purposes of God. 1 John 2, 17 says this, the world is passing away and also its lusts, but the one who does, not just gives lip service to, not just gives a head nod to, the one who does the will of God lives forever. The world is passing away, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. And then John 15, 18 through 19 says, and again, this is under the theme, that the world is complete, is in opposition to the work of God. If the world hates you, Jesus says, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of this world, the world would love its own, but because you are not of this world. And again, I just have to highlight one of the things that is so profound in our culture is when Christians re-embrace and actually begin talking about and living out lives of purity. When we re-embrace purity, when we walk in, uh, in, when we live as virgins and we're not afraid to talk about that, that's a huge mockery today, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's, it's laughed at, mocked at, joked uh, that, that it's such a ridiculous thing, but it's one of the ways that we really do show our lordship and our surrender to Jesus Christ. And he, so it says, um, but I chose you out of this world. Because of this, the world hates you, Jesus says. You know, I'm reminded, I was talking with a ministry friend a couple years ago, and he was telling me about a situation where um, he and a couple of other people were sitting with some, with some girls in their teens, <clears throat> and they're just dialoguing with them, having conversation with them. It might have been kind of a, a youth meeting of some sort, but, but pretty secular uh, girls, and, and uh, it, it, there were f- five or six of them, and they were all sexually active and, uh, you know, had, very much didn't see a problem with that whatsoever. And one of the girls, uh, it really stood out to him a great deal to the point that he brought it up and commented to me. One of the girls, though, in the middle of their kind of conversation, is she made a reference to a girl at school who is a Christian. And she said her name. I don't remember what it was now. It doesn't matter. But she says her name, and she goes, you know what? I hate her. I hate her because she still has her shine on. And when, he pro- when, he, when the question was asked, well, what do you mean by that? She was still a virgin. And this girl had given something away many times over that she would never be able to get back fully. Now, can she walk in, in sexual purity? Absolutely. Can she be washed and cleansed and made new in Christ? Absolutely. But I thought it, it's profound when we recognize that while the world is saying, oh, it's the greatest thing ever, just dive in, embrace all the sexual you know, freedom that you possibly can get, don't worry about um, you know, this, these prudish ideas from Scripture, there is a way that it erodes us at a soul level. When Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6.18 to flee from sexual immorality, every other sin that a man commits, Paul says, and I'd say parenthetically, or woman, every other sin that a man or woman commits is outside the body, but the one who sins sexually sins against their own body. And that because we know that there's all kinds of sins that we can commit against our own body, I really believe that what Paul was talking about, it's what I began to experience too at a pretty young age, um, is, is I be, begin to experience this internal decay. This, this, what I really look back now and understand, it was a decaying of my soul. Sexual sin impacts us at a soul level in a way that no other kind of sin does. Now, that doesn't mean it's that somehow it makes us, you know, uniquely in need of the cross. We're all in need of the cross. But it does have a consequence to us that, um, that other kinds of sin 
uh, doesn't bear out in the same way. Of course, there's always consequences to sin, but there's something unique about the soul level. And I think that girl was expressing without even realizing part of what that looked like in her own life. And then um, we go on and just uh, this theme of the, the difference of the world and, and God's plan. So Hebrews 11, 24 through 26 says, by faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter by faith, choosing rather uh, to endure ill treatment with the people of God than enjoying the passing pleasures of sin. Does sin have pleasure associated with it? You bet it does. Why do it otherwise? But it's the passing pleasures of sin for a season. Considering the reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. I love this last line. He was looking to the reward. He's looking to the greater reward. He's looking uh, to what Jesus has for him by his following and his obedience to Christ. The pursuit of and commitment to sexual purity, this is similar to what I said earlier, and the honor of others, the pursuit of and the commitment of sexual purity and the, others of, uh, the honor of others, body, soul, and spirit as image bearers of God is a distinct mark of a Jesus follower. We're obviously talking about serious stuff. And it is serious. The consequence for not yielding our bodies, for not yielding our souls, for not working out the stuff that we're struggling with internally and, and externally, oftentimes with sexual sin, it's stuff that we're doing in private, right? Or maybe connecting with an individual. And we want to keep it totally private. But I'm absolutely convinced from what Scripture says in James 5.16, I don't have the slide, but when, it's, when James says, confess your sins to one another and pray for each other that you might be healed, the prayer of a, of a righteous man uh, or woman accomplishes much. That isn't a suggestion, that's a command. It is God's prescription for internal healing and external healing. We have to involve others in our process And the good news is, when we do, we can walk in freedom. I remember walking around some of the streets of the city that I lived in when I was bartending at this gay club. Um, I had been in, uh, I, I had, my desire originally when I left Bible, not when I left Bible college, but when I, I, I kind of found out about my first gay bar in the town that I was living in, and, and uh, sort of haltingly, hesitantly, found the bar, and, and I was scared to death to go in, and eventually I did, and I felt like I'd finally found my people. I'd grown up in the church, gone to Bible college, grew up in a Christian family. I didn't feel like I fit in anywhere until I was 19 years old for the first time in this place. And um, it was a powerful experience of, of feeling accepted and feeling like I could fit in with other people, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but there was a high cost. And so I don't know what it is that you might be living out. I don't know what it is that, that you might be struggling with at a relational or sexual brokenness uh, level, but God does have answers for you. I remember walking around the city one night, just really miserable, uh, fully embracing a gay identity, had no desire whatsoever to ever be married to a woman. I couldn't even imagine that. Uh, I, I, it, was, it, was, it was as repulsive to me as uh, you know, a straight guy might feel about the idea 
of, of um, homosexuality. It just didn't, it didn't feel like it fit. It felt so foreign. And so, and I never wanted to be a father. I thought I'd be a horrible father. And, um, and, what I, and the reason I'm saying this is my life is not some unique thing. You have a story. I've got a story. And you know, but ultimately, you know whose story it is? It's his story. It's God's story. And in this culture that we're living in, the tsunami of sexual immorality and sexual brokenness and relational brokenness that connects with sexual brokenness, it is devastating us, not just in culture, not just out in the world, it is devastating us in the church. The statistics are off the charts for men, and increasingly women, by the way, who are using pornography, for Christian leaders that are, that are caught up in this stuff, and, and not just pornography, but even sexual sin. It's an area of our lives that we can't, we can't cut a piece of the pie of our lives out of sexual immorality and sort of set it aside and ignore it and act like everything else is fine in our spiritual lives, in our, in our, in our deeper lives. Just because we're attracted to sex before marriage, attracted to somebody when we're married who's not our, who's not our spouse, just because we might have uh, same-sex attraction as I've had, and by the way, I still have some of that. It's not anywhere near as, as much of an issue that it, as it used to be, but some of it's still there. I would have loved for the Lord to take that away. He chose not to. And you know what my attitude today is? Who cares? It doesn't prevent me from being a good husband to my wife. It doesn't prevent me from being a good father to my boys. I get to say no to that like I do to every other area of sin, as we all have opportunity to do. Our, my point in saying that is our attractions, even the most powerful attractions, are not our identity. Our identity as men and women, even unbelievers, every man, every woman, every boy, every girl, is made in the image of God, which goes back even to uh, what Pastor Chuck was talking about last week in terms of life. We are made in the image of God. And in Christ, so that is, that is our first identity as image bearers of God. And then in Christ, our identity is rooted in the work, the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross that redeems the ability for us to live as men and women intentionally wanting to live out the image of God in us to, toward one another and toward the world to reveal God on the earth. Let's just look for a moment at, uh, at Romans. I know Pastor Chuck touched on an earlier passage um, earlier than this, but this is, I think, uh, verse 26 of Romans 1. And so it says, for this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. I think sometimes we, we sort of have these generalized views about what the Bible teaches about homosexuality, and it seems kind of fuzzy. I think it's important that we actually look at some of these passages. And it's not all about homosexuality. I hope you've heard me say that. This is just one, one aspect of the broader issue of sexual brokenness in culture. And the broader umbrella of sexual brokenness has much more to do with heterosexual sin than it does LGBTQ, but that's also a part of it. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions, it says. What reason? Because they were professing themselves to be wise and became fools. They had decided, um, as we often do, that we are going to ignore God's law, ignore God's design. We are going to worship the creature rather than the creator. And so this is a place where we see it all throughout the Old Testament, and we see it in this section too. This is the place where Sexual sin and idolatry are intrinsically linked. These are, these are the two twin sins that we see over and over and over again took down the children of Israel over and over again. 
And it's, it's also what robs us often. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions, for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also, the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire uh, toward one another. I don't think Paul could have been much clearer. And there's some other passages as well. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own person the due penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over. It's what we wanted. So God gave, it, gave them over to a depraved mind to do the things which are not proper. And again, this isn't just about LGBTQ, but we can't leave that out of the equation. God is at work to redeem lives. I love this passage from C.S. Lewis, which, um, from The Weight of Glory. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. Don't we oftentimes feel like our desires are way too strong? They just kind of overpower us. They're too weak. We, have, we are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slums, that was me for sure for a long time, lots of years, because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. And what should the response of the church be? We need to understand that our genders, male and female, and this goes back to um, the, the big idea for today, that our genders, male and female, are by design. Physical, sexual union, marriage is designed for male and female only. Our, nat uh, our natural gender-based uh, physiology does not provide for homosexual union and relationships Homosexuality is not a natural biological sexual orientation. And you know what? That would have, I'll, would have made me mad. I'll say it nicely at one point in my life. But this is the truth that we need to somehow as Christians hold on to as an anchor while loving well and loving radically. If the worship team wants to come up, I'm going to wrap up quickly with this. Um, and this is the takeaway, the challenge do not be the first to cast a stone at anyone who believes they're gay. Do not be the first to cast a stone at anybody who's struggling with sexual sin. You know what I find to be most helpful, honestly, is when we will start to get real. I love all of the writings along the, the windows. I would love to see some writing that talks about what the sexual sin that God has freed us from. I'd love to see real, some vulnerability, not only what's up, and this is vulnerable, but I would love to see vulnerability in what God has done in the deep, places, private places of our lives, because people need hope. What helped me tremendously come out of this place of, of homosexual identity is when I heard some guys who didn't struggle with that stuff be willing to share their own struggles with pornography, sexual sin, that God was at work and had been freeing them from. So don't be the first one to cast a stone because somebody says that they're gay or struggling with sexual sin. We're broken in relationships, but we're also made whole through relationships. We aren't going to be made whole through an argument. We aren't going to be made whole by somebody grabbing the Bible and thumping us with verses. We're going to be made whole because you're willing to roll up your sleeves in the messy work of walking with one another and, and moving them together toward Jesus. So, bless you. Thanks for letting me share with you today. Pastor Chuck's going to come up and lead us in communion.